0: Made me think. In the middle of that, I had listened to a sermon this week. Um, no, it was on the radio. That's where I heard it. I was listening to a talk show radio, and it was a guy, and he was talking about how it is that you deal with people who are atheists who want to say, "Well, there is no evidence that there's a God." And he said one of the things that that he learned by living. Uh, you know, through the Iraq War and going over there and serving and now coming back, and through his personal life experiences of holding people's hands as they were in hospitals and dying and so forth, he said, you know, one of the things you know about people is, and I'm going to not probably tell this whole story really well, but he said people um, by instinct know that they need oxygen, for instance. You also know by instinct you need food and you need water, right? Those are three things you know by instinct. And so he went through this whole explanation, and I won't give it all, but basically he described how you know that happens, such as a person who's thrown into a water situation and they're drowning. Their instinct is everything in them to get to the surface to get the air. They know they have to have the air. It's an instinctive thing. He said, likewise, a person who's dying, If you have ever been with a person who's dying and you're holding their hand, he said, by instinct, what do they do? What do they do? They pray and they cry out to God. If you're in in an automobile accident, almost the first thing out of a person's lips is, oh, God, or Jesus, help me. Isn't that an amazing thought? I mean, the way he put that, he says, this is how I know without a doubt there is a God. Because by, by the intuitive nature of who we are, we know if we're in the desert and we're dying of thirst, we got to get water. And we will do everything we can to seek for it. If we need oxygen, we go to the surface, right? If we need food and we're starving to death, we, we seek for it because we know our bodies need it and they're, s- they're dying without it. He said the same is true of your spiritual soul. Your soul knows that if you are about to meet death, that, that there is a God and you cry out to him. Pretty cool story, huh? That came off of a radio t- program. Pretty neat. <laughs> and he wasn't it wasn't a spiritual channel, I don't think. I mean they weren't necessarily teaching the gospel or anything, but I thought his, his, um, his reasoning was really sound. Okay. So, I'm going to start our our morning off by doing uh, a little list, a timeline with you about the ministry years of Jesus. I have given you this. I'm going to attempt to PDF and send this to Lois. It's a chart I found on Bruce Hertz' uh, website, uh, preceptaustin.org, in case you're interested. That website, by the way, has got lots of cheats in it, if you wanted to cheat um, but I mean if you also I've got to warn you it is like drinking out of a fire hydrant because he gets so detailed I went in and researched uh, by accident I got to him I don't know how it was I was I was surfing the web just to get some insights about the peace that you give to your brother that the, the peace that you give to them when you enter to the home that part that's in our text and I ended up at Bruce's uh, website, and, which was cool. Well, his article on peace, I got started reading it, and I thought, I need to print this out, just put it in my book, and I can highlight the things I want to keep. 89 pages <laughs> <Wow>. on peace. <laughs> I went, okay, that's why I know he's got the gift of the word of knowledge, <laughs> because the man is like an ency- walking encyclopedia, and, and you know, I think what, what was it they did, the book of um, Daniel, when I first came to this church, and I think they were on year four, of being in Daniel because he had to take him to so many things. <laughs> he was still in it. He's amazing. He's very talented and he's very thorough. And I would have to say, if I were going to have a commentary, I'd want it to be by Bruce Hurt. So if he ever starts printing commentaries, I'm buying them. Um, anyway, so... Um, in there, I found this lovely chart. I said all that to say this: I found a chart, a chart of a timeline. There, there, there is no copyright information on this chart. Um, uh, so I am going to, you know, what we might want to do is just uh, even call Bruce and ask him: Is this okay for us to send out to the class? But I, I copied and pasted it for myself so I'd have it as a as a tool for teaching, and I put it for you up here on the board, just the basics that you need. There's lots more information on this chart than just this, but this pertains to what we're looking at in the book of Luke. Um, how many of you ha- have found that it, that all of a sudden when we hit 951 and Jesus said, and he set, he was determined, I keep wanting to say he set his face towards, because that's what that word determined means, but he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And it was kind of wrapped up in this package about the Samaritans and why they weren't accepting him. And you can kind of get distracted from that little statement. But what is that statement about that he said he is determined to go to Jerusalem for what? His crucifixion. crucifixion. So we now know that in chapter 9 and verse 51 of Luke, we are now at the end of his public ministry. It feels like we just got started. He just selected them. He just, you know. Well, what in the world happened? And I got curious about that. And I'm thinking, okay, where really are we in this timeline? Because the Gospel of John has got markers... Of all the feasts, and so you, you, know, you tells some stories, and then there's another fe- there's a feast, and he tells some more, and then there's a feast. So you can mark off the three years of ministry really nicely in the Gospel of John if you're looking for it. Um, but Luke doesn't have that, and so this chart helped me a lot. So what we see is that in Luke chapter one through four covers j- Jesus' birth up to his baptism, right? We know that. Uh, temptation, begin and all that happens, all in this first part. And this is a, a primar- mostly exclusive to Luke, although there's a, a few little points in here that are found in some of the others. But this birth part particularly is exclusive to Luke, right? All right. But then we have a year gap. Nothing from his first year is recorded in Luke. Okay? So we just skipped a year. Now we're into the second year so so chapter 4 verse 14 begin is 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 figured out by the other books is in his second year it's just just at the beginning part of his second year. Where we are now in chapter 9 and 10 is right here we're at the beginning of his third year at in 917 at 951 which is right there at the end that I just told you. He's determined to go. That marks the beginning of his last six months. So everything we're going to be looking at from now until the end of Luke is all taking place in a six-month time span. So it's going to be a lot of details about it, obviously. So you can already tell then that Luke is emphasizing what about Jesus? About his ministry. So he is the Son of Man, and, and because he's the Son of Man, what do we know about the Son of Man? What have we discovered about him? Who is he? He's God, and prophetically, what is he? He's Messiah, and it tracks back to where? Where's the first mention of this Messiah that's going to come? Oh, come on. Genesis chapter 3 in the garden of Eden when there's the fall and the promise was made to the woman I will send a seed right and the seed is going to do what crush the head of Satan ah hallelujah right and so we made a nice little list about the things that when he comes to crush what it is that he he undoes that we damaged things like what sin is in the world (laughs) and because, and by sin what comes is physical death, right? So one of the things he's going to do is conquer death, right? What else came into the world? Sickness. Sicknesses, illnesses. We, and so he overcomes that and he does his working ministry in Luke we're seeing is him uh, doing a lot of healing, right? What else? Demons. He overcomes the demons. He has the power to cast them out, right? And as a matter of fact, we're seeing again a little bit about the spiritual realm in chapter 10 this last week, right? We saw the the uh, the victory over and that he gave them authority and power over them, right? All right, and was there another one? Um, the kingdom. He's going to reestablish king because the, the fourth thing that we lost in the garden was our Fellowship with God the Father one on one, where before the the fall, man was wa- God was walking with man in the garden, and it was it was personal one on one contact and relationship, and that's what we want to have reinstated, right? Now in the new covenant, we have um, through the spiritual work of God in our hearts, we have the we have God put back on the throne for us individually, and we have access according to what Scripture teaches us, access to do what? Enter, Enter into the throne room of God, right? To walk right into the very presence of God through the through the power of prayer. But one day, there's going to be a literal kingdom that's going to come, right? So we're looking forward to that one day. And the work that we're seeing Jesus do in his earthly ministry um, the, the Jews of that day had not separated those two things, a spiritual kingdom and an earthly kingdom. Also they did not separate for themselves the work on the cross and then the kingdom ruling of Jesus Christ, right of, of the, the seed when He would come. So these two th- these are the things that we're kind of sorting out in hindsight, we got it, right? We can see it now. They didn't have that privilege or that benefit of fully understanding it. We've seen other scriptures that talk about that. Even this week where it said they longed to see these things and didn't, right? And we are now seeing them. So how privileged we are to have that benefit. Um, It's kind of like for you and I today, though, is we're looking forward to the literal coming of Jesus to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years, right? And we're going to come with him to rule and reign with him, those of us who are in the household of faith. But we're looking forward to that. We don't see the reality of it yet. We're looking at it by faith that it's coming. That's what they were doing in the Old Testament about the coming seed. They were looking by faith that Jesus was coming. So. This timeline, I think, helps us a little bit, kind of anchor ourselves a little bit. You now know we're, right now, we have started at the beginning, from now on, we're in the last six months of the ministry of Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, and the emphasis is placed upon it because he is the seed, and the work of the seed is to to crush The the head of Satan to have victory over death. Now, what is the, the most powerful symbolic picture of him having victory over death? His resurrection. Now, while he was on earth, he demonstrated he had that power through raising people from the dead, right? But when he himself is raised from the dead, is the ultimate victory. And Had he not gone to the cross, it would not have been fulfilled. It would not have been accomplished. Why? What do we know about sin? What is the wages of sin? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What did the Lord have to do? What is the washing power, so to speak, The the symbol of the washing power? The blood. Without the shedding of blood? What? There is no remission of sin. This is why in the book of Leviticus, the highest holy article presented in the Levitical system is blood, and it's why any time blood w- was touched or came into contact with under any circumstances, everything from childbearing to, you know, killing an animal out in the field, if they beca- they came into contact with blood, also death is another one, but blood particularly, they had to atone for it and there had to be a cleansing for it. Not because the person was filthy, <laughs> but because God wanted them in their mind to understand what the blood pictured. It was going to be for them the forgiveness of sin. And for them, he and he speaks of it from the ter- the terms of atonement, right, in, in the Levitical uh, system. So blood is only for atonement, according to Leviticus. So those pictures are really important to kind of tie it all into what we're looking at here. Jesus is headed to the cross. He has to go to the cross. That's going to be the ultimate nail in the the coffin for Satan concerning his power over sin and death. That's when Jesus gets the victory in that regard. But there's still more to come in the fulfillment of those promises made specifically to Israel. Um, and also to us, the coming of the kingdom for us, and one day when that's done, we get that thousand-year reign here, then we get to go into the new heaven, the the new earth where there is no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, none of that will be even permitted. Yay, let's go there now. (laughs) Let's skip all the thousand years, let's just move right in. All right, so I hope that timeline is helpful to you a little bit and gives you some things. Now, how are you doing on your at-a-glance chart? Are you keeping up to date on it? It was her last instruction. This tells me whether you got through your homework or not. Your last instruction was write your titles and your themes on your at-a-glance chart. Okay. If you haven't done this, this is this is I think really important. I, I, I got a little story to tell on my husband because this week we had to start working on, ta- or he did taxes, right? And um, he had not been keeping up with all the stuff. Now he did get it done. It was, but he grumbled all day for two days. Because he had to gather all the things together and find the papers and find the whatever it was that he was looking for and then chart it all out and get it. and I said, honey, I have a question for you. How come you haven't hadn't kept up with this like monthly, just re- recording it? And then when you're done, it would be, have all been in your book, you know? And he said, Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. So this is equivalent. If you keep up with this week by week as you're doing your your observations this will not be a big chore to you. And the other thing I've got to tell you is visibly when you see when you read down your list of titles you start to see a flow and if anything if any of your titles are off it messes with your flow. And you recognize it just by putting it in this chart form. There are things that I have gone in and tweaked because I see oh, I went off into this on that title, and I shouldn't have, I need to rein it back in and get back online with with the emphasis of what's going on in this book, right? So I just highly encourage you guys to keep up on that, all right? All right, now, we are ready to dive in. All right, let's start with Luke 10. Now, Luke 10 is in some ways familiar, right? How was it familiar to us? The opening verses, particularly. He's sending them out again, He's them out again. and this and it's almost verbatim the same um, instructions as he gave before. Correct? Let me look here and see where I've got my chart. Hold on, I have I have a nice little chart. I think. But I I should have pulled it out, and I didn't think about it until just this second. Oh, that was a good scripture. (laughs) Where is it? Hmm. I may have lost it. I paralleled Luke 9 with Luke 10 on a chart so that I could compare the instructions that he gave them. I can't find it. I must have, I've tucked it in somewhere and I can't find it. It's not important, I guess. But I paralleled the two side by side so I could make a comparison of what he said to his 12 when he was sending them out and then compare it to what he said to the 70 when he was sa- sending them out. What Did anybody else in here kind of do that? I know she did say, go back and and look, and and she wanted you to note that basically this is a repeat of what was done in chapter 9, right? But, But there's a distinctive difference, and that is what? Yes, but actually that was in the last one too. Yeah, they did go out in pairs. And you're getting closer. How many went out in pairs? 70. Before it was how many, twelve. So my title today is, Jesus is expanding his ministry. He is beefing up his ministry, uh, 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 workers, the laborers for the field. Have you noticed that? And it was very sudden, right? We just in in nine seven in nine seventeen or in nine at the beginning of nine, which would have been all the way back here at the beginning. Um, he is. Um, sending out by 12 and now we're probably in at the very beginning now of the last six months and now he's he's expanded it one of the things that I saw when uh, when he was sending out the 12 in that uh, in chapter 9 was that prior to that what was he doing with his disciples what were they doing with him were they going out on their own no, they were staying close to Jesus. Jesus was the one basically was performing all these miracles and, and doing the, the bulk of the, of the presentation of the gospel, although they did some, I'm sure, but they had not been sent out to be independent from him. Why do you think th- that Jesus did that? Why do you think he sent them out while he was still with them? Yes, exactly, sir. training them. It's not, it, it actually makes sense. If you consider where we are in the timeline of things, he is preparing, and he knows, according to 951, he is now determined to go to Jerusalem. He is, his face is set for that, and that is, and that is his, his um, focus of attention. But with that then comes an urgency to do what? Prepare them, right? to get them ready for when he's not going to be with them anymore and they need to carry on the work of the gospel without him. Now they may not fully understand that yet. Um, Susan and I were talking about um, the, well can you explain a little bit better about the lack of what they comprehended and didn't comprehend? In his glory with mm-hmm. Yeah. So he literally, well, Susan was saying, she was surprised how clearly he stated, I'm gonna go to a cross, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna resurrect, and you know, then I'm gonna ascend, right? And so he he laid it out really clearly in black and white. We saw Peter in that chapter make his confession, right? What was his confession? Jesus is the Christ, and so he knew who he was. So there's these really clear bold statements about the fact that they absolutely know who he is and yet on the other hand what what happens when Jesus is um, taken captive or taken under arrest by the Roman soldiers what does Peter do the same one who just made the confession he he denies him three times not once not twice but three times Now, Jesus had already told him he would do that, right? (laughs) He shouldn't have been surprised. But yet, it makes you ponder a little bit and say, okay, so if they knew on the one hand and yet they're denying on the other, what's going on, right? Where is the disconnect in the mind? So what do you think? It's not exactly the way they wanted it. It Okay. Okay. There you go. You, you, absol- you, you went right into it exactly correct. I think that what is going on here is a restraining work of God, probably by the Holy Spirit in the minds of believers, that they not spill the beans too quickly. Because And also that they themselves not step in the way because we saw Peter want to do that at one point and Jesus had to undo the damage, right? He had to correct him sort of and rebuke him in a way um, to hold your horses, right? He, he didn't say what you're saying is not true. He just said, don't, you know, this is not what my kingdom is about. And I think it's one of the things that they didn't really understand Um, is the training that's going on here, he is truly preparing them, right, for a long-term mission that they're going to carry on once he's gone. I don't think they get that yet. They think he's come to be the king, and they're just going to keep following him, and he's going to kind of dictate everything, and they're just going to be obedient. But that is not what's going to happen. Jesus is going to ascend to heaven, and then we are going to be left here on earth to carry on the ministry that he has laid out for us in these chapters. So what he laid out in chapter, well, actually in all of them, we can accumulate it all together. But particularly in 9 and 10, we're seeing, because we're at the crunch we're at the last six months. He's getting ready to go to that cross. And so he's he's pressing in to expand the ministry. He went from 12 to 70, right? He wants, he, he, he also is urgent. It's like, you go, to the, you go to this city, you go to this city, you go to this city. He wants the word out so that as he goes through these cities, the hearts have already been prepared. They're almost like little John the Baptist in a way, right? They're forerunners for his work. while he's here on this earth so he's sending them out to prepare the people's hearts so that when he arrives then they're ready for it but it's about the fact that he is preparing the ministry work of these people he's preparing them for ministry now how can that benefit us
1: Okay. Next, so they died.
0: Okay, and yes, ab- that's exactly right. What else? Anything else? Mm-hmm. So, this is teaching you and I also. So, we've got the benefit of it having been recorded now for us so that we can see. This is Jesus's, by the way, th- this isn't. Paul's instructions. This isn't Peter's instructions. This isn't John's instructions. These are Jesus's instructions. This is how I want it to be done. And this is what I'm telling you, you have power and authority to do. And this is how, this is what I'm impressing on you. Now, some of it, uh, I taught, I walked you through last week, analytical observation, right? How you take passages you make simple or topical lists on them and then from that list you draw back and say so what am I seeing here what is this saying right you analyze it and then you put it in your own words and you you form things so I want I want you to kind of do that with me just a little bit we see in 1 through 12 him telling them uh, some things like um Go, I'm sending you out as uh, lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no, shoe, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. That's an interesting one. What is that about, right? Uh, whenever you enter, uh, you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house house. All right. Analytical thinking here. What's going on? What's he saying? You've made your list, I'm sure, correct? On um, what he said to do. Analyze it. Why? Why is Jesus saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, and do this, and do this, and do this? And do this. Okay, number one, he's wanting him, again, this is exactly what we talked about last week. He's wanting them to rest in provision from God himself through the ministry work that they're going to do. As they move along, God will provide someone in those cities. And he said, and if they don't, if there isn't someone in that city, then what? Again, back to shaking off the dust and moving away. What did we learn about about that concept? What is the imagery of that about? What did you learn? What does it mean to shake the dust off? Well, it's not exactly a curse, but it certainly isn't a blessing. The there you go. It, that's true. It's not. It, um, it, it could be almost considered a curse because the consequence of shaking the dust off is basically saying what? I, yeah. Yeah, I, I think of the one that says don't cast your pearls before swine, you know, but basically if they will not receive the word that, that you have given to them, then you are to simply retreat and leave them to themselves. They are, they are, you've made your bed, now lie in it kind of a thing, right? It's, y- if you reject it, then you get the consequences of it, Correct. All right. Any? What else do you see in there? What about things like um, the greeting? One got me. I didn't totally research that one as carefully, but I, I think I understand what it's saying. Greet no one on the way. What is? There you go. Don't be distracted. Don't be slowed down. And and you can take that one step further. Then and if he's saying don't get distracted, what what is he wanting them to do? be focused, be determined keep you know keep your eyes on what it is that you're doing there, why I sent you and what you're there to do. so if you are fully committed to preaching the gospel, you're not distracted by other things like the like in this case he said about not greeting people along the way that has to do with slowing down, making friends, hanging out, you know, all those kinds of things, right? For us, that's what that would mean. It would mean Starbucks and coffee. Um, but he says, you're not there for Starbucks and coffee, you know. You are there to preach the gospel, so stay, stay focused. Um, uh, Kay Arthur, in her teaching on spiritual gifts, calls it locative of sphere. And I love that term. It just sounds so impressive to me. I've always liked that term. Um, it means in that in the context that she was teaching, it was on spiritual gifting. And once you know what your spiritual gifting is, try to focus your growth and your strength building in the in the gift that God has made obvious to you is the gift He wants you to exercise in the body. He has placed everyone in the body as He has desired. And so, if you, if I, for instance, if I am so busy serving and singing the choir and, you know, working in the children's ministry or whatever and doing those kinds of things, and I don't spend the time working in my homework, then I'm not going to be really an effective teacher. But if God, if I know God has gifted me to teach, then I need to stay focused. And that's kind of what he's saying to them here. Look, I am sending you out for a mission. I've given you a specific duty to perform, and I want you to stay focused on it. So we see that in those first verses, right? So tell me, um, when you look at Luke ten on the whole, how do you see it breaking down? How, like paragraphs or subject matters, how is it broken down in this? Very good, Susan. Excellent. That's exactly right. Nice. And, and in that, he's talking about the subject of his laborers who are his disciples. And, what is, and concerning them, he's instructing them, right? But he's also letting them know that when they go out and they speak and people don't receive them, who are they actually rejecting? God. So what does that tell you about them going out and speaking? Who are they speaking on behalf of? God himself. So literally, if you are um, a missionary, or a pastor, or a teacher, or or, or if you're out spreading the gospel through uh, sharing your faith with others, when you do that, you are literally an ambassador for Christ. You stand in the place of him, or stand in the gap, so to speak, and you represent him, and you speak on his behalf. That's, that's kind of... Uh, I don't know, it's almost um, overwhelming to me to think that when I speak and I'm teaching the word of God, that I am speaking to you as Jesus would want you to hear because I'm teaching his word, if you stick with his word, right? And so if you reject what what I have to say, it's you're rejecting not me, but who? God himself. So in those first 24 verses, he is, he is gathering and multiplying his laborers for this work of ministry, of mission, and he is letting them know that when you do mission, you are speaking on my behalf. You are literally representing me. And that's what you see through those whole, whole first 24 verses. So let's... You're gonna be now my title for the my chapter is Jesus is expanding and preparing his laborers. Why? Because we're in the last six months. He's about to go to the cross. So he's he's energizing and and growing his team, right? Yes. He's also making it clear in there that they're ambassadors for God because he says both to those who accept
2: and those who reject, that the kingdom of God is come near to you. Mm-hmm.
0: Very good, exactly. So now that you know that, 1 through 24 could actually be one paragraph, but within the paragraph we are going to try to break it down because there are some specific points that he covers as he's talking to them about being his laborers and being his voice in the world. So we're going to talk about that. Now you hit 25, and then what happens there? And where does it end? 25 to 37. Okay, very good. I got cheat notes up there too for you. Um, And what is the core message in this? What is going on in this part? What is being uh, about the neighbor? About a neighbor. So if he's training his disciples, you and me, if he's training us to be and do mission in this world, the first. Uh, 24 verses talk about the actual mission of being his ambassadors and and being his voice in the world right now he's saying um, this the next quality about being my disciple is what Loving loving your neighbor which entails showing mercy and compassion loving your neighbor so this one is basically about living as good neighbors So he's telling you and I what he wants from you and I as his disciples. Be his laborers and be his voice and live as good neighbors in this world. Yes? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and I can't wait for us to talk about that one. Did you all do some research on Samaritans and what the dynamics were? Okay, so we'll talk about that because that one, and I think it's hysterical that Jesus specifically picked a Samaritan to be a representative of a holy living person. (laughs) You know, because it, it's like a finger in the eye, just a little bit, but he proved a point. And he proved a point by, at the end of it, when he asked him then who was the good neighbor, he couldn't answer anything except the Samaritan. There was no way he could, without just denying the truth, right? He couldn't do it. Okay, now we get to 38 to 42, and what is the last segment about? Sitting at Jesus' feet. So, in, in this, Jesus kind of concludes at the end that there is really one thing about our life with him, which, by the way, includes us being his labors and his voice and us living as good neighbors. But what is the key to all of it? What is the priority in all of it? Our relationship with Jesus isn't that lovely. It makes me think of the revelation, the letters to them that, that they had left their first love, even though they were doing all these good deeds, being good neighbors in the world. Yet they had left their first love, and he rebuked them and said, "You must repent." So we have in thirty-eight to forty-two that um, th- that what Jesus wants from us as his children in this world and in this this. Um, n- church age as, as his people, he wants us to keep Jesus as the necessary thing. Oh, I love the Lord. Yeah. I tried to use the words from the text, but that's exactly right. Keep Jesus as the necessary About In your spiritual walk with God, in your relationship with him, the most essential thing is Jesus himself. Don't forget that. And if you do that first, these things will follow. There will be a natural flow from that. But if you neglect, and this is one of the reasons for as a teacher, and I know it's partly it's my spiritual gifting, and I can't help it, but, you know, I think this is the most important thing you can be doing in your life. As God's children, if you're not in a good study where you are really learning about who is he and what does his word really say, because you cannot learn the things that we are learning here um, by serving him or by um, being a good neighbor to your neighbors, right? You can't do it. And by the way, can you even give the gospel if you don't do this? do you have the gospel if you don't know these things that you were learning not really it is um, one I remember many years ago I was at another church and uh, there was a youth group activity that they were going to be going to Virginia Beach of all places but that's where they were going to go and they were going to do some witnessing on the shore and so I said to them why don't you bring have your class come in I will take them through first John it's fairly short I can I can simplify it a little bit for them but I said I will take them through how you can have assurance of salvation. I said, if they understand their own assurance of salvation, they will be much better witnesses when they're out on the beach, right? If they don't learn wh- what covenant is and what assurance of salvation is, how what do they have to tell the people, right? Yeah, well, yeah, and you and it may be as simple as that for some people, but honestly, most people in our world have deeper questions, and they want to challenge a lot of them. Now, some of them are not, they're not wanting to come into faith anyway. You know, they're just, it's kind of like the lawyer we have in this particular uh, passage about the Good Samaritan. He, he is purposely trying to trip up Jesus, and if you, go into the other gospel I think it was in Matthew was the parallel one on it Uh, you get expanded information on there of how really they were trying specifically to just um, debunk what Jesus who Jesus was and what he was saying and so you know his heart was not in the right place he wasn't asking the question to learn he was asking the question to trip him up right All right, so now we know our outline. We're going to see it from these three paragraphs, basically. Now we're going to discuss the details in each paragraph and walk through the things that he discusses there. So we saw the first 12 verses, 1 to 12, that he he sent out the 70. Right? And that's in verse 1, I think it is. Is it 1 or 2? One, okay. All right, so when he sent them out, tell me what you learned about going out. What were some of the points that you found that you wanted to really um, kind of expound on? Because we have the time today to actually go through some of these things and talk about them, so, which is unusual. I hope you came prepared. prepared. Yes. Sent by two. So the, this is, I think, interesting. What, what does that say to you? Go it alone. Don't go it alone. Ministry work is not a solo flight, generally, right? And what can going by pairs do for a person, in particular, you know, when they go out to do missions like this where they're spreading the gospel? Okay, okay, it's iron sharpening iron in, in the work of the gospel message. And it strengthens their authority and power. Okay, it does, tr- two, a wi- two witnesses affirm something, by two or three witnesses you affirm that something is true and accurate according to Jewish tradition, by the way. I didn't even think about that one, that one's one that I should have looked at, but there's a verse, I think it's in Numbers that talks about that. That's a good one. Verse 3 tells you another little hint as to why he might have sent them out in pairs. Yeah, for safety. Sent out by fares, and he said, you are going to be sent out. So he warns them, right? You are sheep among wolves. Or lambs. Okay, that's probably better, lambs. Thank you. Lambs among, okay, they are going to be lambs in the midst of wolves. That's in verse 3. So sent out by pairs in a way kind of follows that statement, and it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, he, so you're also sending them to places where he's to go. So yes. You know, so they're, they're forerunners. The forerunners. Two runners, he's gonna now I think about this. Does that does that have application for you and I? Huh? We're forerunners. We are forerunners for what? For the kingdom of God that's to come on this physical earth. Had you ever thought of that? That just like these seventy are being sent out into the nations, into the cities, and they're to prepare the way, and they're to tell them that that uh, the kingdom of God has come near you, right? guess what? So are we. We're doing the same exact thing. The kingdom of God has come near and will literally come. And so we have basically the same mission statement that they are being given here, right? Next. Um, When he instructs them to go out and he says things like uh, uh, take, don't take a cloak and don't do this and don't do that, right? Don't get distracted by people, right? So basically he's saying travel light and stay focused, right? Travel light and stay focused. That was my conclusion. That was my analytical conclusion. Travel light and stay focused. That's kind of on the whole from everything that he says there. Um, one of the verses that came to my mind when I was looking at this thing about b- them being lambs in the midst of wolves is one that's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, where he tells them basically the same thing, that they are sheep among the wolves in that passage. And he says, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. <laughs> I thought of that verse and it tickled me. Now, the peace, let's talk about the peace, because that's an interesting statement, right? Um, Whatever house you enter, first say peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. And if not, it will return to you. Now, what did you learn about that subject this week? About the idea of them uh, giving peace. There you go exactly it's it's like the blessings and the cursings did you notice what it's followed up with if they if it turns out that man is not a man of peace then it returns to you right and then basically you shake the dust and you move on so um, one of the places that I was looking was through Bruce Hertz uh, multitudes of 89 pages on peace, and after probably an hour and a half of reading, I finally hit some sections that were really more pertinent to what we're looking at here. Um, And in there, he was talking about the blessings and the cursings of the concept of giving a, a Uh, uh, a greeting of peace so if you go into a home and you greet them with peace it is saying may God's peace be on you one of the things that he brought up in, in it was that peace is not speaking about the absence of difficulty or even oppression but that it's what it's the presence of God himself and in that God can according to the Old Testament, he can give prosperity or he can withhold pros- prosperity, right? Where are we on the timeline of history here? Great. Yes, we are. So in this part right here, I just I'm going to remind you that we are Old Testament covenant yet, correct? We don't enter into the new covenant until the cross. And, that, and the birthing of the church was fo- follows 50 days after on the day of Pentecost. So we have to understand that when he's talking about this peace, what is the, he, the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. shalom. So when you're looking for this, if you decide to do any more work on this at all for yourself, just pencil in on your, te- on your text that, that word peace is actually the word shalom and you're going to get the majority of information from the old testament examples and statements concerning it because their mindset and their application of this m- message of peace let your peace rest on them and if not let your peace be withheld then it is the old testament concept so it is everything that you would learn about it from the old testament applies here okay a man of peace I somebody who is open to that. there you go
1: Yes
0: Yes. Okay, so let's put this on here. If a man of peace res- I think it says resides there. Let your peace remain on him. You know, it kind of makes me think about when we studied the subject of the holy kiss. Do you remember that that in the church is where this is a New Testament thing, but that when people would greet one another, they would h- greet each other in the marketplaces and other places with a holy kiss, and it was a symbol or a signal to any anyone that would recognize it and including the two who are engaged in it that I'm recognizing you as my sister in Christ, and that we are one. And this is, I can't remember now what the, con- the whole context was of that particular study that we were doing, except that it had to, I think it was in the book of Acts, maybe we were studying it, but it was about um, identifying with that person and having that oneness and making it a public uh, um, declaration. Okay, well, in this case, the peace thing is Old Testament, and it's the same thing. Where in the New Testament, we give a holy kiss. In the Old Testament, they would say, may God's peace be upon you. Right? Yes? I found there were 17 different words for peace in the New Testament.
2: But the one that stood out most is the one that Paul used to start his letter. when he says, grace and peace. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And it has to do with the Sabbath rest. And right, right. All now, and all, and that peace is going to be from, from this point exactly. on, right? That's the, So now that you've kind of been made aware of that, it kind of changes a little bit too. All the hard work you did in the, in the New Testament looking at the word peace, it's still good stuff. And in, ba- and in basic truth, it still applies. Really, none of it changes except that in a new covenant, it's through the blood of Jesus, and the real peace comes through that new covenant. In the old covenant, where we are right now in our study, we're still under the old covenant laws. That peace was the peace of God of blessing and cursing for those who obeyed Him, right? And so, what you're really seeing here is the blessing and the cursing concept, and so. Let your peace remain him if he's a man of peace, but if he's not, let it come back to you. He doesn't get to have the peace of God, and he doesn't get to give, have your approval as, a, as being a receiver of that peace either. And for a Jew, uh, he, uh, in, or in particularly in that part of where their ministry was, they're, they're, they're all in Israel, right? So they're ministering to the Jewish people. For the Jew, they want that and they think they're entitled to it simply because they are born of as the as children of father abraham right this is one of the issues jesus in the other gospels keeps coming up against that you think basically that you're you're good just because you're a child of of father abraham but that's not so right it's those who believe that are actually my children now we get that in other new testament passages a better explanation on that but um Okay, so that was cool. So this piece, shalom, shalom be to this house. I have a shalom on my wall at home. It says shalom, (laughs) y'all. It's a Texan one. (laughs) Um, If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. Okay, and then stay there. Then, so it just gives some guidelines about you know going in pairs, um, warning them about the fact that they are going to be lambs among wolves which is probably why he wants them going two by two and not alone but also he warns them about now this is interesting again imagery right you're among Jewish people who everything is about the imagery and I'm so thankful because the imagery for me is huge I I do little uh, clip art pieces too on my charts for you guys sometimes you see those I think um They are huge in my mind because when you see the gnarling teeth of a wolf, you know, and his his tongue is hanging out and he is just ready to get you, it, it does impress upon you what the danger is, right, that's going on there. What was particularly, if you now know we're in the last six months, what has happened gradually in the ministry work of Jesus and his followers concerning oppression? They're definitely out to get, I mean, in the beginning they didn't like him. Then as the time went by, they're getting more and more aggressive. Now they're at the point of pursuing, right? And so Jesus has happened to be very careful, and there are times when you see through the Gospels where Jesus literally says, I won't go, it's, my time is not yet, um, and he withholds going into certain places because he doesn't want to antagonize, right? All right. They are plotting to kill him at this point. That's exactly right. Could, Could be. be, especially considering he closes this this section out with the the robbers <laughs> that that put the guy out because they they beat him up and robbed him and left him for dead. Maybe. Yes. Certainly it ha- would it would uh, actually make sense and I would say if if you know much about missionaries that is one of the things that they do not do is travel with much money, right? Does anybody have any stories on that or th- thoughts about that? No. Okay. Well, I you know, the pe- the few that I I know it, when they go they're careful about what they carry and where they carry it, right? Okay, so that's a good point. Okay, let's move yes. Mm-hmm. Well, we we know when we hit um 13 on he's going to make it even more clear but you're absolutely right and he does say that. You see the kingdom of God is mentioned twice once in 9 and once in 11 so those are keywords should have been marked if you didn't mark them do so, right? Um because he compares the one he says for the, the those who receive him the kingdom of God has come near you and, but in verse eleven it says the same thing, be sure of this that the kingdom of God has come near you oh yeah, has come near okay I kind of um i th- maybe yeah. yeah, 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 it could be yeah, that's inter- that's a good little it's a subtlety that could be meaning exactly what you say, yeah, absolutely, okay. All right, so now the next part of instruction to his laborers and those who are going to be his voices what? What does he cover in 13 to 16? Yeah, he's warning again, right? So up here, he's warning them about them being uh, l- lambs among wolves, but he sent them out by pairs I- with instructions. I'm going to put that in here. He gave them lots of instructions. So he's instructing them. He's warning them there. Now we see another warning. What is this warning pertaining to? Yeah, he warned about rejection. Concerning rejection, he uses that word woe, right? Woe to those who do not listen. Yes, okay, so when he does that, he mentions Sodom, he mentions Tyre, and then he mentioned Sodom, right? So there are three cities that he mentions: Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, right? Sidon, yeah. Now, since these are historical references that the people would know about, tell me what we know about Sodom. What is his point when he, when he speaks about Sodom? What happened to Sodom? yeah Sodom was totally destroyed and why were they destroyed? Yeah they rejected the witnesses of God that came and and they rejected the Word of God itself. Let's go to second Peter two six real quick. I have a reference on here to look at that and I'. Let's see what it says. Genesis 19, by the way, is where the storyline about uh, Sodom is, if you want to make a note about that, just on your observation worksheet. But Jesus gave historical examples. Yeah? What did you learn? Yeah, and you know the part, and, and kind of where my mind goes with this too is um, when, Je- when God speaks to us about the leaven that, that affects the whole lump of, gl- of dough, right? So when you don't um, remove that sin from your midst, it permeates and it spreads. And Sodom and Gomorrah had definitely had their effect in the world at that day. And because sin was allowed to go rampant and unchecked, that's what happens. I mean, we see that happening in our society right here in our own state today. We're seeing sin going unchecked, and our nation is being affected. And it's, gonna, it's going to really come back to bite people at some point. But, you know, all we can do as the church is continue to be his laborers and go out and spread the, you know, we cannot change the hearts of people unless God changes their heart. Really, the systemic issue is you can point out sin, but people who don't have a concept of sin and, and what is holy and right, they don't have a plumb line to go back to, right? So if we aren't teaching them about Jesus so that Jesus becomes their Lord, we're not going to really change anything, so the 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 only medicine I've, I've I've got that little boy that little cross stitch I tell you guys about, it's um, a precious moments, and he's dressed up like a doctor with big baggy clothes, and he's got this, the the uh, stethoscope, and he's got it laid on the world, and he's basically examining the world, and and it says Jesus is the answer, you know, it, that is it. We the answer to the ills of our world is Jesus, and. If we don't do that part, if we don't be his labors and be his voice, that sin is going to embed itself and spread. And it, th- there's no stopping it unless you get to the hearts of the people. And you have to do that one by one by one. That's all you can do. Right? You can't, you can't, it's not, it's like there's no national salvation. <laughs> it's individual salvation. Okay? Okay, so we saw them. what does 2 Peter 2.6 say?
1: righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day by day with it. the lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of
0: Okay, so that was six through what? Nine. Six to nine, thank you. I didn't. I didn't have room on my chart to put the rest of it. <laughs> okay, so the whole thought there is: what happens if you don't? Um, if you don't keep sin in check, what happens is God will judge. Judgment is is not an option; it's an absolute fact. It will come, and j- there is going to be judgment for every man, those in faith and those out of faith. The one in faith, it's a judgment of the good deeds, and it's for reward. That's what we are judged on. It's not a, its not about our sin or about our life that was, you know, f- in failure. But it's about the things that we've done for the Lord. So we get reward. But the unrighteous, the ones who re- refuse to hear, they will come to judgment. And that's what he's pointing out here. He's warning about rejection. Mm-hmm. Where do you see Sabbath, it's right here in verse, um, verse 12. 12, yeah. I say, t- I say to you, it will be more to- tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And then he goes in 13, woe to you, Chorazin. Yeah, so you kind of have to pick it up out of 12. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. There you go. Why is it more tolerable for Sodom than it will be for these cities today that he's talking about here, Chorazin and Bethsaida? There. They didn't have the full revelation of Jesus before them, right? They didn't have the coming of the seed right before them. As Jesus says later, um, you know, they, they wanted to see, they hoped to see, they dreamed to see these days that you are seeing, but they didn't. And so, because to whom much is given, much is required. Accountability grows with insight and knowledge. The more you know, the more you're accountable. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Right? But see, in faith, we're under grace. Right? I know. Kind of. I can remember when I was first told that. I thought, oh, I don't want to learn another <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, that is so so. Okay. So then he says, and then what did the Jews think about Tyre and Sidon? Because Tyre and Sidon were then also mentioned. No. And what were they considered? Yeah. I don't know how to spell heathen heathen, and sinners. Okay, so these were, Sidon and and Tyre were, basically, they were just totally the scum, you know, as far as the Jewish thought, huh? Yeah, they really were God-forsaken, they were, they were, uh, uh, they were these heathens, they were, they were far from God, and they were basically the example of what not to be as a people, right? And so they deser- basically, in their thinking, they deserved what would happen to their, to their own cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida because they were actually worse than Tyre and Sidon. They have more knowledge. They were actually the two peoples that always drank the remember? Yes, I remember. And who did Solomon make covenant with? the king of Tyre, in order to build the temple of all things, right? Shocked me to pieces. I was like, what? <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, he he gives these historical examples, and then, and then he reminds them that they speak on behalf of him. Now, what does he say after that? Yes, keep moving. Mm-hmm. And there you go. The one who listens to you. Yes. Okay. So this is in verse sixteen, and then you, and before that, when he used that word "woe," did anybody look that up <coughs> by chance? It's thirty-seven fifty-nine. Do you know what that word means, woe? Because I thought it was pretty profound in the context of it being used here. It, it is a curse. It literally is saying about them what? You're cursed. You, and cursed in what regard? Well, you'll go to yeah, there you go. That's nice and clear. Thank you. <laughs> you are basically, alas, horror, how dreadful, what terrible pain will come. It is literally speaking of their their eternal judgment. Inhale, right? Whoa. There you go. In in verse 12? 15. 15. Okay, I'm going to put that on here. Brought down to Hades. I'm going to put that on here. (laughs) Brought down to Hades. That's good. 15. put that on the wrong one. Eternal pain is in the definition brought down to Hades is the reference you just gave. Isn't that an interesting thought? Yeah. And yet we also know that if anybody will come to him, he is available. I like the, the passage in um, Acts 17 that says that God has determined the exact time and place that we should live that we might seek God and find him, although he is not far from any one of us. You know, God does not put any man anywhere in time in history that he does not make available to them uh, for those who will seek him, those who will find him, those who will repent, will have opportunity. And so God doesn't hide himself from any man anywhere in the entire you know eternity of humankind from the garden on if there's opportunity for salvation it's made available no one is left behind right and yet there there are these kinds of statements that, that you know if you're careful if you're not careful and if you violate your known doctrine you could jump to the conclusion well he should have done that cuz then they all would have been saved no he, he but what he is saying is there was more people within Tyre and Sidon who had a heart to come to know God than there are in, in Beth Seda and Khorasan. And, and in Beth saying it's near you. Yes. yes. Salvation hasn't come yet. Yeah. Right, yeah, he right. He's right. saying it's come near you. Yes. But the people up here in Sidon are gonna yeah, go salvation. He says it may be it'll be better for them in judgment. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I think he's also making reference to a historical thing that they know about what their history has been, so that he's referring back to that. Okay, so let's move on. Let's go on to 17 to 20, where he corrects them. Um, And this is an interesting thing, because they come back and they're giving a report, yes? And I'm not going to be able to write this on, because I'm out of space. I'll have to just send it to you. Is that okay? Okay, 17 to 20, he corrects them. Basically, he's refocusing them, right? What was the the deal there? What was going on with them? What were they rejoicing about? That they were able to cast out demons. So their focus was on what? What was their focus on? Yay, me. Look at me. I cast out demons, right? It's pretty easy for people, even today, to get... Uh, wound up in their own accomplishments, right, to be really proud of themselves, you know, and have an arrogance maybe even about it, and or taking a delight in the wrong thing. You know, if, if I want to delight, it's not that God doesn't want you to delight in your spiritual giftings and the works that he gives you to do, but what is your real rejoicing supposed to be is, not, is his power and the result right? And what was it that he wanted them to rejoice in? That their names were recorded in heaven. So he's saying, look, you can, you you know, if you're rejoicing in the fact that you're doing this miraculous thing, then you've lost sight of the fact that the whole point is, is that you're bringing people into the kingdom. And then he goes down in the next part of it in verse 18. How did he perceive what they were doing? They give a report about what they said. Yay, we're doing these great things. And he says, no, wait a minute. I want you to remember it's about salvation, right? So then what does he say? In 18, look at 18. So saw yeah, now what does he mean by that statement? That he there you go. Jesus is literally crushing Satan's head and they had a hand in it. Now this is powerful And this is exhorting to me as a Christian. Think about what he was literally saying. Now, I love the fact that he visualized it again. He gave them a a concept of, of a lightning bolt. Right? And I'm thinking, every time they would go, they would go to give the gospel, and they'd say, Brenda, God loves you. Jesus is here. The kingdom is coming. And you go, yes, Lord, and you're praying, and boom, what happens? Satan is dropping and he's literally showing them spiritual warfare he's telling them this is spiritual warfare and I'm watching you have victory over the demonic spiritual realm does that make you think of any um, New Testament passages about who our real battle is when we go out into the world there you go in Ephesians 6 and it says what flesh and blood but against there you go it our battle is not with flesh and blood but it's a basically spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places and so this is what Jesus saw he said you saw your works and you were delighted but i saw the spiritual victory in spiritual warfare that's what he watched isn't that amazing again we see a peek into his deity at work in that moment he's he got he has the the the, the, he is God and he has the spiritual perspective and he's really redirecting them in this moment. He's trying to correct their focus. The reason to rejoice is spiritual victories in these battles, right? Um, and then he talks about that the spirits were subject to them and they had authority over all the power of the in- enemy, um, there was something I was going to re- say, but I've forgotten now. It, it, it slipped out. <laughs> I missed it. I'm sorry. It'll come back later, right? Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So we, we see this. What else? Did you guys have any insights or did you study anything that you want to share on that spiritual battle that you see there? No? I, I don't know how much digging you did on spiritual warfare and the work of you know, the Holy Spirit and so forth, but I just thought this was really good. It's one of the few times, by the way, where Jesus is uh, shown to be rejoicing. Most uh, imageries of Jesus is him in prayer, him in, you know, basically weeping over things, um, uh, struggling or battling things, right? But this is one of the few times where we see that he is rejoicing. It's a beautiful thing. So it's kind of a contrast, right? They were rejoicing in the wrong thing, which, you know, was the, the physical realm. He wants them to re- re- rejoice about things recorded in heaven. Then he says, but I rejoice in who? In I rejoice in y- in about you in the Holy Spirit, right? Is that basically what he's saying? He's rejoicing about them? That the Holy Spirit has done these things and it's through them. So he rejoiced over them in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's rejoicing that their names are recorded in heaven. Right? So Katie yes. back in twenty when it talks about rejoice your names were recorded in
1: heaven. I took that to be another subtle thing of don't get caught up in service and doing works for me. Keep the focus on our
0: relationship. Okay. That in that Actually, is pretty good application in that place. Um, I, I think, though, in the context of the flow of thought here, he's talking about their ministry and what they accomplished while they were out on the mission field, and he—they were looking at um, what they what they did in regards to casting out a demon. What Jesus says now, I want you to understand: what was more important is what you did concerning their spiritual salvation. But uh-huh. so he knew it was through that. Yes. And he was saying, yes, you know, this happened, Satan was falling, and he says, and I rejoice in the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that gave you the power to do that. Absolutely. So when we're in the Holy Spirit, but I don't think he's so much
1: chiding them, he's now explaining to them what it
0: is they're Well, but uh, maybe not chiding is not necessarily the, th- but he is correcting them. He's correcting their thinking. They were thinking because their rejoicing was in the wrong thing. They were rejoicing because of something they had power to do in his name. They were, That was an exciting thing to be able to do, a supernatural power. Yeah, don't you th- think I would love it if I could heal people and cast out demons? And pretty soon, how many of us know about that world out there in, in Christendom, that the whole focus is on the idea of casting out demons and, and slaying in the spirit and healing ministries. And what becomes their focus? Themselves, what they are doing. They lose sight of Jesus. So in that regard, you're correct. It, he's refocusing back on their relationship is with Jesus. But he's saying, I want you to rejoice in what your work actually accomplished. And then he says, like lightning, I saw Satan falling from heaven. Their real victory that they should be rejoicing in is that they are bringing people into salvation and that there's spiritual victory in the heavenly realms because of that. But it says that your names are recorded in <laughs> heaven. Yeah, he and I know. He 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 ta- he takes it to say in a, it's a general statement. It's not just you 12 get to be in. Right. But he's saying you that your name you who believe. And that includes the ones they're preaching to that accept it and they themselves that accept it. And he goes back to the little children thing which he brought up before, right? He brought this, this verse up before in Luke 6, I think it was, maybe, or something like that. Um, I s- I put a reference here for Mark 10. Let's look at that, Mark 10, 15. Someone want to look that up? He's rejoicing over them in the Holy Spirit because their names are re- in heaven. And what he's doing is dis- demonstrating to them what their real rejoicing should be. It should be that those people's names are now written in heaven. He saw Satan falling from heaven because of the work that they did. And that's where the real rejoicing should be, not in the fact that they could. One of the other problems is, are there not some who will go out and about casting out demons in Jesus' name? And then they'll come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? And what does Jesus say to some of them? Depart from me, me, I never knew you. What does Mark 10, uh, 15 say about infants that God reveals himself to? Okay, so it's the childlike heart. When he speaks about the infant, he's saying about them, it's the ones who will come to me in childlike faith, right? That will receive the kingdom of God, and who will, who, and and it's those that I rejoice in. And so he's kind of almost merging a, a multitude of things that he's already addressed even in previous teachings, right? He says in 1 uh, Corinthians, which you all looked at, in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, what did you see there? Now, we did 1 Corinthians recently, so this is really, um, should be familiar, right? When he talks about as little children or as infants, Right? okay both, both yeah, there you go. so it is those who come to him with this childlike heart or or a uh, uh also a need so so to speak and earlier in the in Luke he had said. Um, allow the little children and if you don't come to me as little children you will never enter into the kingdom of God and so it's the childlike attitude that he's looking for the heart of a child uh, that is open and teachable and uh, longs for the love of the father right okay Okay, good.
1: It's from Malachi 3, 16 to 18. It says, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and who esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord, mm-hmm. on the day that I prepare my own possession.
0: Okay, so in which verse is this one that we're looking at? Where, which verse are you relating it to? Um, 20, your names are recorded. Okay, there you go, that your names are recorded. I loved that. I did do some research on that myself and we and looked, for instance, in Revelation, which is real familiar because we've studied there also about the books that are open and you're judged by the things that are in that book. Um, and... 12, 1, right, right. And the fact that, you know, those who are written in the Lamb's book of life are you know, uh, don't taste the second death, right? So, again, it's showing the importance of the mission. So, as his laborers and being his voice, we are sent out um, to be focused, basically, to travel light, to stay focused, um, to... Follow the leading of the Holy, I mean there was all these very beautiful, I mean really if you analyze this whole first section 1 through 24, there are some really good tips on what you and I are supposed to be doing as his ambassadors, right? Ambassadors for Christ. Okay, let's move into living as good neighbors and hopefully we can get through the next two quickly. Um, What do we see there about, what was he teaching them? What was the question? Let's do that. Let's do it that way. What well, the first question? Okay, that's a fundamental, right? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what is the answer to that? And how did Jesus pose it for him? So he did. Isn't that interesting? It's, again, a repeated pattern that we see with Jesus. Whenever there and, and how was it that this man was approaching him? There were a couple of things that we learned about the lawyer. Tested. Yeah. So the lawyer was testing. It was tested, Jesus. And if you go to the other um, uh, synoptic Gospels on this, you see it even, even more clearly how he and the Pharisees were all in on this testing thing. They were putting Jesus to the test. And uh, the second thing we see as a tidbit of insight about this lawyer is seen in verse 29. Why was he then after the answer was given, which was correct, and he should give it correctly, right? He's the, he's the lawyer. And when he answered the question, then he, he basically tries to what? What? Justify himself. He wants to weasel out of that commandment. I I don't think he has any problem of at least piously saying that he loves the Lord with all his heart. But then when it came to loving men, apparently that was the heart of this prop, this man's problem. Because Jesus nailed it right. He went right to the heart of what was going on. So he was testing Jesus, and he was trying to, uh, wishing to justify himself. Good. exactly so he wanted to be um, right and righteous and yet was he no he was not so you're right so it says to show or to exhibit or to give evidence to uh, one to be righteous such as he is and wishes himself to be considered (laughs) okay what about lawyer did anybody look up the word lawyer to see the, the extent of what this guy is supposed to already know? Lawyer is, um, it, it's pertaining to the law. It's one that's learned in the law, an expert in the law. That's like you guys. Uh, scholars, like you guys, right? And he's an interpreter and a teacher of the Mosaic law. So when Jesus posed this question back on him, and he asked Jesus, but Jesus didn't actually answer. He just said, well, tell me, what does the law say? right? And so then the guy answers, and when he answers, he gives a a dual um, question. He says, number one, what? What are the two things that he must do according to what he quoted? Love God and love your neighbor. And he quoted these from a couple of different places. Did you catch what those were out of? I mean, there's a bunch of places you could go, but what verses do you know? Where is the Ten Commandments, for instance? We see that in where? Exodus 20, right? It's also in Deuteronomy, also given in Deuteronomy Uh, 6. 4 to 6 is a section of it that we're talking about here. Also, 13 to 15. Also, another one is found in, uh, concerning loving your neighbor. Where is that one going to be found? When did they go on, when they were going into the land and they needed to have laws to live by because they were God's people? What book are we in? Leviticus. Good job. See, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> to be a precept student. (laughs) How nice it is. So in Leviticus 19.18 is that reference to the fact that you are to love your neighbor as yourself, right? You see that in the New Testament reaffirmed in places like James, right? Uh, And well, in other places also, right? But First John does an excellent job about teaching what that really means. What, What is it to love your neighbor? And Jesus affirms that he gave the right answer. Then um, the second question was what? Yeah. First question, second question. Who is my neighbor? Who is it? <laughs> everyone. Everyone, everyone that who? I mean, can you explain that a little bit better than just everyone? Does that mean if somebody I don't even know and never see and don't have contact with? There you go. Anyone that I can have a a reaching touch to, anyone that I can assist by in some measure. Now, in our world today, that makes it a broader picture even, doesn't it? Because we have more access than we ever used to. But in the day of this writing, it would be anyone that you did what? that you came across, anyone that you had a physical ability and a contact with. All right, so interesting. So he teaches them um, that your neighbor is anyone that you can reach, number one, and that to walk past anyone that's in need is what? Not loving your neighbor. I mean, it's pretty black and white. It's not a difficult passage. The whole thing is like, okay, I get it. I mean, really, you can almost run through this one pretty quickly. And it's why Jesus used a parable to teach it. He took, he took a concept that can have really far-reaching, profound possibilities, right? And he narrowed it down to one example. Now, what was interesting was that he uses a Samaritan in here to also teach. What is the purpose that he used a Samaritan for? Why did he do that? The history on the Samaritans and the Jews is amazing, right? Did you guys all kind of read and look on that? It's extensive, and it goes back to the Old Testament. There were these breaches. There were these problems. Even I remember when we did Ezra, and, they, and we we showed them coming back to rebuild the, the temple, right? And they wouldn't let the Samaritans come in and help, and they were really mad about that, and that caused a deeper hurt again. Um, and there were... What they felt were were good reason for them not, but um, it, it just deepened this, and it became a combination of political and spiritual issues for them. Um, so it's really it's really amazing what's up there. The Samaritans had no, and the Jews they had no love for one another, and it's a long history of of hostility between them. So where are we at in history here? Um, One of the other, I can't remember, but they were making um, a contrast or comparison between some current events even for you and I today. It would be like, you know, these two groups who are against each other and these two groups today that are against each other and these groups who are against each other today. And so all of a sudden, this commentary brought it forward and made it really applicable for you and I today to say, You know, you have these kinds of hatreds and prejudices against people too. And what Jesus is teaching us here is what? (laughs) What's he teaching us about that? You are to love everybody, particularly for the purpose of spreading the gospel, you know, bringing people into faith. Okay, so even if you don't like them, even if you don't agree with them, even if you can't really get along with them, you're to try to the best of your ability to demonstrate love and to hopefully bring them toward God, right? Um, Okay, show compassion and mercy. Okay, so that is um, the living as a good neighbor, now we have one more, and we've got about four minutes, so we're going to have to hustle, huh? Okay, the last one, well, it shouldn't be hard. It's, a, it's the story of Mary and Martha, right? So there's Martha, and there's Mary. Now, concerning Martha, what do we know? <laughs> Say it again. She was busy. She was busy and worried about many things, right? I'm going to put on here, worried and bothered by many things. I can relate to her. Yes, and she welcomed them into her home. She welcomed uh, Jesus into her home, which is interesting because at this point, you know, Jesus is not well-liked <laughs> by a lot of people, and yet she brought him in. So that tells you that she's overcome, you know, the things that the world was saying about him, and she was still open to receiving him in. All right? But also she was yeah, she was a servant. She was distracted, it says. Distracted with preparations. Now, we're not getting, hold on a second, P-R-E-P, I can't spell and write and talk. P R P R A. (laughs) that's really bad. I'm sorry, I messed that word up pretty good. It's preparations, distracted with preparations. The way that the text states it and you write it down, and this is very interesting though. Here's what I think probably happened. How many of you have a, a real gift and love of serving and hostessing and exhibiting hospitality, and you feel like that's something God has given you as a ministry? One of you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> only one? You're the only one, Kathleen. We're coming to your house after Bible study. She'd be okay with that. You know, I like to do it, but I, I feel like I'm like, I'm Martha. Yeah, I... <laughs> Yeah, your anxiety, okay. Yeah, yeah. But here's what's interesting. I do know that without making a list on this, the way we're doing it, it's really easy to say, Well, she loved to host us and she was really busy. We make it all sound like positives, but what does Jesus make it sound like? Some negative. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's the point. That is the point. And is he saying that her serving is bad? No, no he's not. But, but he's saying when you compare it to what? To, being, to what Mary was doing, which was doing what? Spending time, spending time with Jesus. When there's a comparison made, what is the more important thing? You're serving or you're worshiping Jesus? Your worship. Right, and and sometimes I do think that we get caught up, and I know I do. I'm, you know, I'm I'm going to be having some friends come into town, and all I can think of is all the things I need to do at my house. I got to clean that drawer out, and I got to reline that paper, and I got to clean the garage, and I got, you know, I just think of all the things that need to be done because I want the house in good order. But you know, this is what Jesus is saying here: Don't be distracted. Now, in ministry, now that's just about a personal life thing, but when it comes to ministry, even Sometimes what happens is we get so caught up in the serving or the doing for God that we forget what the most important thing is in that in this process of having relationship with him so it's really neat to me the way he closes this book out he starts about yes you are to be my laborers and you are to be my voice in the world and I have called you and I am sending you out and this is the message and be careful about this and be warned about that and remember this is the thing that you're to really rejoice in is the fruit that you're going to bear for the spiritual kingdom and then he says and while you're doing that you are to live as a good neighbor in the world you are to love people around you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, it's the golden rule. Two things that, that the law hangs on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the golden rule. We see that in the book of Matthew also. So he covers that. But then when he gets to this last one, he closes this little section out, the way they divided these chapters up. They're letting you know, but even though these other two things are true, Serving him and being a good neighbor. What's most important? Loving him and keeping him as the priority. So he goes through this litany of things about poor Martha. She welcomes him, but she's distracted with person. By the way, what do you think, is, what is the sensation that they give you about how she feels towards Mary? Mary? There's some anger there, there's some resentment, there's some jealousy, I don't know if it's jealousy because she wants to be sitting, because I don't think so. What she doesn't want to do is to be sitting, she wants wants Mary to come help her, relieve her burden a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, I know. (laughs) Jesus, you tell her to come help me, (laughs) poor me, right? So, and you know what, there's a pretty good lesson in that too. When you're ser- If you are serving the Lord and you're exercising your spiritual gift and you feel put upon because of it, you've got to get an attitude <laughs> check, right? It's time for an attitude adjustment. <laughs> but what about John? Yeah, exactly. Don't you worry about him, right? <laughs> and that's what Jesus says. That's it. That's what... In a way, in a way, although I don't think Jesus was exactly saying that, but it can be similar. It's like, don't you worry about what Mary's doing. You do your thing and let Mary do hers. He he doesn't really say that here. What he's really saying here is, you know what? She made the better choice. Yeah, because he won't always be there. Not only that, but he's not here now, but still, can this apply for you and I today? Absolutely. Sometimes we need to discipline ourselves to stop serving and sit down and actually spend time in the Word. This is what I kind of started this conversation earlier about the thing that my passion is, is to train up people in the Word of God. This is what this is my spiritual gifting. Um, because what I see is there's a lot of people in our churches functioning in spiritual gifts that they obviously have, but they're not doing it with wisdom and knowledge and insight. They don't, you know, they don't, feeding people properly sometimes they're not if their gift is comfort or exhortation but they're not exhorting correctly because they don't know what God says about that subject so they're they're blind it's the blind leading the blind sometimes it's all with good intention and they love the lord but they don't have the true knowledge down yet and they need to get trained up so that they function properly as God's children I don't think so. I think they already. Uh, we. I didn't look to see where in the timeline. Yeah. Is this at Bethany, right? This is at a place called Bethany. I did do some research on Bethany. The city itself was actually a a place for the invalid and the sick to come. It was like an almost like a, a hospital type. It, uh, er, the word itself means house of pain or house of sorrows. I think that word by definition, Bethany. And it was a place where people, when they were traveling through to go to Jerusalem, if they'd had woes along the road, they would go there and get healing, you know, and then they would go down into Jerusalem to the temple. So it, it became literally a, a nursing place, a place for healing people. And I the reason I researched it was the Lord's doing. My son has a friend, and her name is Bethany. And I looked her name up to see what her name meant, and then it took me on this rabbit trail about Bethany because then it fit with my Luke study, and I went, Oh, that's where Martha and Mary are from is Bethany, right? Thank so. No, but he, I just think that it's interesting because what we're seeing here with Martha and Mary, particularly Martha, she does have this this real heart of uh, serving and compassion, and that's a good thing, but it's probably tied into where they live and what they were doing daily.
1: Okay, he says, only one thing is
0: necessary. That's right. Only one thing is... What is it? <laughs> well, you tell me what no, is... Well, what what oh, and, and she chose the better. So what did she choose? To sit at Jesus's feet. That's right. Listening to every word he she was she was hanging on it. Mary was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Jesus commends Mary, she has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. So here's some analytical observations I have on this last section. Martha's hospitality was admirable, but Martha's anger at her sister was not, right? Mary had chosen the more important thing. Mary's desire to hear Jesus speak, to listen to every word, shows her love for God and her belief and hope in the coming Son of Man, right? Mary's rebellion to her traditional role implies she saw the uniqueness of Jesus. She dropped all of her other distractions in her life to just spend time with him. So these are just some analytical observations about you know, the dynamics that were going on. It was not that Jesus was condemning Mar- Martha in any way. However, he was making the point that Mary made the better choice. She made the more important choice. And for you and I, we too must keep focused on that. Don't ever um set aside Jesus because you're too busy serving him. I
1: love
0: the way sometimes in passages you see a human side of Jesus, for example in 41 where he says, "Mortamarta." I know. I know. Oh, I know. I know. It's so funny.